Hello, hello. Welcome to At Home with the Intuitive Cook, the podcast giving a voice to everyday home cooks like you and me. Join me around the kitchen table as we chat about finding cooking ease and inspiration beyond rules and recipes and the noise of celebrity chef culture. It's not rocket science, it's just dinner. Hello and welcome, wherever you're tuning in from. I'm Katerina Pavlakis, the Intuitive Cook, and at home with me today is Alex Louise Thomas. Joining me from South Wales, Alex Louise is a money coach helping people on the road to financial freedom, a busy mum of two under fives, and a former chef. Above all, she's one of the most passionate and spirited people I know. And her energy is truly infectious. Good morning. Hello, Alex Louise. Great to have you. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely. So we we had a conversation before on your podcast that was I was very mm. wide ranging. So mm. maybe we'll revisit some of those conversation points. But let's just start quite at the beginning. Do you have Sure. A really early memory of food or cooking? My mum used to make milk bread plats. So it's like a Swiss kind of recipe with milk and eggs in the bread dough. And then she'd plat it and it was like the most soft, doughy, delicious thing I think I've ever eaten. And I've, I don't think I've ever managed to completely recreate it. And it was that it's the everything, right? It's the dough, the watching it rise, the smell of it. It's too hot to eat, so you have to wait. And then it's still warm and or just the whole thing, the way the butter melts on it, the way actually then when it's cold, it goes a little bit crusty, but it's still really soft. So yes, is the short answer to that. You know, and I'd have been a child. I don't know what age because she used to make it all the time. But yeah. And also, I mean, she used to make strawberry ice cream. That I'm just, this is so interesting. You're asking that direct question of me going, oh, what is it? She used to make strawberry ice cream. When the strawberries are in season and it was again i've never tasted strawberry ice cream like it and there's a whole you know it's because it's childhood and trying to replicate it and i think actually we used to go and pick the strawberries in a pick your own farm and then she would make it and we'd use cream and you know it's just that the whole world of proper ingredients and doing things quote unquote slowly that it, it impacts the flavor you can't you can't buy that in a supermarket yeah, because it's the whole experience is tied up in the in the flavor. Exactly, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? That how the memories are not only connected to to the taste of it, but as you said, the the whole experience, yeah. the context, the situation, the people, the place, all all those things. Yeah. So, and do you remember? So obviously, your mum was a good cook. So, do you remember learning to cook? I don't remember formally learning how to cook. I just knew how to cook. And I think it's that being around cooking. You don't, I didn't realize I was learning. I remember being 10, 11 and making sponge cakes and, you know, decorating them with icing sugar and being able to heat up a, like a long wire skewer and make the pat, like burn the pattern into the icing sugar across the cake and stuff. I don't, no one ever taught me to do that, but I was taught all the time because every, you know, my mum cooked all the time. She made she made everything. And my dad would cook. He loved food and he would cook now and again when it was like big meals. He'd kind of get involved and he, you know, he can cook as well. 
it's just that being around it all the time and learning without realizing learning it that I think, you know, again, looking back, it's really interesting being asked this question that we have such a move in the modern day to do formal learning and you must learn how to do something. And it's horrific. I mean, I hated school, but actually we learn just by being around stuff, which is really cool, but also devastating because now children aren't around cooking in anywhere near shape or form that, you know, I was. I mean, I'm 43 and what's happened to food since I was born is just, I would say, devastating in an, an unintended consequence of convenience and don't worry, you'll, you know, you don't have to burden yourself with cooking. I don't think there's any, you know, dark forces at play. I think it was all done out of don't worry, we'll help you. And look, I'm really clear that food companies need to make money. I don't think they did it you know, oh, we're going to make people sick and fat and all the rest of it and take them out of kitchens and children won't learn about food. I think it was all done with a, oh, this will really help everybody. Yeah, the, the curse of convenience. Yeah, it's devastating. It's, it's, it's beyond devastating. And we don't realize it until we get sick or tired or we just don't feel right. We're like, we don't, we don't feel right. And, you know, people listening to this, if they can just connect themselves to how do you feel? And if you don't feel good about the food you're eating or something feels off, that feeling's real. And it's, it is the curse of convenience. And it's, it's difficult to distinguish because we're told this is going to make your life better. And in some ways it does, right? Because you'll have to be in the kitchen. But on the other hand, if I eat bread or strawberry ice cream now that hasn't been cooked in a kitchen and I haven't had the full range of experience, it's kind of empty. It's just a piece of bread. There's nothing else. There's no connection and relationship and smell and wonder and curiosity. Just the curiosity of watching bread rise. It still gets me now as an adult. You know, I make dough and I go back a couple of hours later and it's twice the size. You don't get that when you buy bread. And it's like all of those things that we don't really know what they do, but they connect us to something far deeper than just, oh, I'm hungry, I need to eat food. You know, it used to be that if you didn't cook or someone cooked for you, you don't eat. And now it's almost like cooking gets in the way of eating and it's something, you know, you have to somehow, you know, get get around because, you know, yeah. uh, cooking is preventing you from eating. So how can you minimize cooking or get around cooking? And of course, it is these days yeah. it's perfectly possible to go through life without ever cooking a thing, and people do. Mm. But interestingly, even if you never cook a thing, that instinct of, you know, what is good to eat, we still have that because obviously we're all eating every single day of our life, whether, whether we cooked it or not. Yeah. yeah, right. I had a catering company. It's longer than I care to remember now. It's like, gosh, it's nearly two decades ago. And um, one of my strap lines was even a sausage roll should taste amazing. And I used to make sausage rolls and people would be like, oh my God, these taste so good. So like alluding to what you've just said, they were like, what did you do? I made it. I didn't buy it. It wasn't made in a factory. The sausage isn't full of more bread than the pastry. You know, like that whole, it's real meat from outdoor raised pork. And I used to buy the puff pastry. I tell you, the puff pastry now, because puff pastry is one of those things, even as a chef, that 
apart from when I worked for Raymond Blanc at the Manoir, no one makes it. Like chefs don't make it unless you work in, you know, Michelin star restaurants. And in that, and, and there, there was a, I think there were 10 people just on the pastry section who made all the bread and pastry and all the rest of it from scratch. So, you know, most restaurants in the restaurant literally buy the pastry in and it's kind of acceptable because it's a difficult one to do It's you know, and the pastry that we used to buy 20 years ago, isn't the pastry that we can buy now. It's different. It doesn't act the same. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't taste the same. If I made you a sausage roll now compared to 20 years ago, using, you know, the brands that we all know, like just roll pastry or even, you know, Sainsbury's, it's all butter pastry. I don't know what they do to it, but it's not the same. It doesn't act the same. It doesn't look the same. But we as a, as a population, we don't notice because every year stuff shifts a little bit. So we don't notice a big, until we have conversations like this and I go, man, sausage rolls 20 years ago were not what they are now. We don't notice because we usually compare things to last year. It's like the population getting larger, you know, from a weight perspective. It doesn't really feel that bad as such because it's happened over the last 30 years. And then I see a, you know, a meme on the internet. This is a beach from the 1960s. This is a beach now. And it's like, whoa, what happened? And it's the same with food and things keep creeping in. Yeah. Actually, sort of quite surreptitiously, you mentioned something there, you know, that you used to be a chef. So you said you learn cooking by, by being around people who cook. Yeah. So how was then the next step up of, of becoming a chef? Um, well, what's really interesting, and I've, again, I've not made this link before, is that I started working, I did some work experience in school at 14, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I hated school. We'd only just moved to Wales. I was really struggling just as a teenager and with, you know, just family dynamic, moving, making friends, all of that. So, you know, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was just not, I couldn't, I couldn't do my life there and then, never mind, like, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? One of the questions that really actually annoys me that we ask children, it's so like, it's like, they don't know. I didn't know. And the ones that do, it's great, but a lot of children don't know. So it was kind of like, well, people who don't know what they do go into catering. So I got a job. I said, such a joke, right? Like such a hard career. And the people that end up there, it, it, yeah, it's interesting. So I did work experience in a small hotel in Cardiff and I was chamber maintaining, cleaning, doing a little bit of. I think I did a little bit of restaurant service. It's all kind of the memory sort of collapsed because they actually, after two weeks, they paid me, which was revolutionary because at 14 to have suddenly financial means, no one else in my year of like 200 kids got paid. So I was also like, oh, this is pretty cool. They paid me and offered me a job. And I said, yes, please. And the work was fairly, you know, it was, it was pretty basic, right? It was a pair of hands. But I suspect because I'd done all this stuff at home with my mum, you know, it's like changing beds or taking plates to people or washing up, whatever. So I did more of what we've just talked about. I just learned by being around the people that knew what they were doing. And as I went along, I learned more and more. And I ended up then going for a waitressing job in an Italian restaurant with a friend. And I think I was like, again, 14, 15, maybe not even turned 15 at this point. And um, looking back, it's hilarious because I'm sure they were just like, who are these children? It's, you know, we thought we were like all so grown up. And I look at 14 and 15 year olds now and go, did I really look that young? Because I felt very grown up. They said, no, you can't have a waitressing job, but you can wash pots if you want. And we went, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. It'll get us in the door. Because they kind of said, 
and then you can become a waitress later. So we were like, yes, okay. So then I was washing pots and when there weren't pots to wash, I'd prep veg. So I was like chopping boxes of mushrooms, peeling onions, picking spinach. It was an Italian restaurant. So, you know, all, all different veg. And, um, Mark, the chef said, what are you going to do? You like, I did my GCSEs when I was still 15. So my birthday's in July. So my GCSEs were done. He was like, right, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I hate school and I'm certainly not going back there. He said, do you want a job? And that was it. I was in. And instead of them pot washing, I was in the kitchen all the time. But again, I was only 15. So I was just, I just learned. They just showed me what to do and I did it. And within a year, I was running the downstairs kitchen. It was like, it was a three-story Italian restaurant. And I'd done the pizza section, the starter section, the pasta and meat section. So at Christmas time, I'd run with another chef. I don't know, we did, I think we had about 40 or 50 covers, customers down on that floor. And we'd just do it together. I could run a section on my own and do 150 covers upstairs. It wasn't easy, but I could do it. And I did it just because I'd learn, because I watched the people that were there. And I wasn't under this enforced learning environment like school, where you're told you need to know this. I was just learning because that's what everyone did. And yeah, so baptism of fire, but what an amazing way to learn. Really, you know, powerful and, and hard and all of it, like the whole thing, like so many hours, so little pay. Wouldn't change it for the world. I'd do it all over again. I'd recommend that. I don't think kids are even allowed to do that now. I, I think they'd actually not be allowed to do that, which I think is devastating for children who actually, you know, older children who actually want to get their hands involved in something. You know, by the time I was 18, I was working for Raymond Blanc at his Michelin star restaurant. And again, I went back to the bottom of the pile and I started on the veg section. And then I worked my way around every, every section. And I learned by seeing what people were doing. And, you know, there was no far, formal classroom. And at 18, there were people who were coming out of catering college who, guess what? They had to start at the bottom and pick spinach. So I'd had, you know, four years of full-time experience. And full-time in catering is 60 to 80 hours a week. It's no joke. So I was really qualified by this point. Whereas the people that had been formally taught in college, it was like they were coming into a kitchen for the first time. That's really interesting to see. You know, we, we forget that learning is something that happens, you know, every second of us being awake. You know, when you're a child, even a, a lot more so because you have to learn everything. Yeah. But we don't just learn when we're being sat down to to learn. You know, we just learn by by going through life at every step of the way. Mm. So that's interesting. So even as a chef, you didn't have a formal qualification. You just learned on the job as I assume, you know, also chefs used to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, and I'd say anyone listening to this, who's thinking about, you know, going to work in a kitchen, go find your favorite restaurant and off to wash the pots because you'll learn more that way than anything. And then inevitably within probably a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, They'll be short-staffed or they already are short-staffed. So you'll end up doing more and then bang, you're in. Like this, this idea that oh, I must go and get a qualification so I can go into a kitchen. That's actually, it, it sets you backwards. You know, it, it's, and it's completely counterintuitive because we're told you must have a qualification. You need to go to university. You'll never make anything of your life if you don't have a qualification. It's not true. It might be if you're going to be a doctor or a vet or a lawyer where you, you know, you really do. Like you have to learn some stuff in that way. But for a lot of jobs, you don't. 
And I'd say for a lot of jobs that aren't being taken by AI, you don't need a qualification. There's the paradox. We're sending everyone to university, telling everyone they need all this, these qualifications. They're the easiest jobs to wipe out with AI. That is a really good point. I haven't, hadn't looked at this that way. Yeah. But also it's interesting yeah. that, you know, hearing your story and thinking about the fact that, you know, me as, as the intuitive cook, sort of teaching other people mm. how to cook intuitively, I really have this hang up that I'm not a qualified chef or, you know, I have no qualification. I love that we've just realized that or that you've had that because we've spoken before about this, but I've never met, looked at it like that before either. Like neither have I. And as you said, you are not in catering anymore. You don't work as a chef anymore. You're now, you know, a, a mum of two young children. You're a really busy yeah. money coach. So you True. are, you know, a really mm. busy person like like we all are. But, you know, you still need to feed your family. So has the experience you had as a chef, does it help you being an everyday person feeding a family? Or is that just a different kind of thing? I think it makes it much easier for me. And I'm aware that I don't know what it feels like not to be able to cook, right? So I find it quite hard to comprehend not being able to cook. Like when people say, I can't cook, my first question is, what the F do you eat then? Because like, I, I really struggle to get my head around that. So I'm aware that I can cook very fast. I can cook intuitively, but that's because you know, chefs end up kind of having, well, not all chefs, but a lot of chefs learn, you know, we, we know all of the, like the, the things that you talked about, which by the way, when you talked about food layering and patterns, I was like, whoa, I've never thought about it like that before. So it makes it easier and faster for me because I've just, you know, it's repetition, right? I've chopped more mushrooms than I care to imagine. Like you, I could probably fill this room and more with the number of mushrooms I've chopped. And by very definition it means i can chop very fast but i also don't think that you know in in terms of like how long that actually takes it's kind of fractional you know i've still got to get a pan out of a cupboard and i still have to decide what to cook and i still have to do the shop you know like cooking is such a it starts with what the meal plan for the week even if it's in a broad i don't kind of have a very rigid plan but i kind of know well i'm going to have a whole chicken and some steaks and a pack of sausages and some stewing lamb and I'll, you know, I'll buy some minced meat and then I'll, you know, once the week starts to settle, I'll decide which days are a bigger cooking day and which are less. And I always cook three times as much as we need and then put two thirds in the freezer. So then on a day when I'm really busy, I just get like, today we're having bolognese. I made it last week. You know, it was in the freezer. I took it out last night. I put it in the fridge. I'm going to cook some pasta. I'll make some salad. Dinner's going to take me probably quicker than microwaving a meal today but you know the other day i made bolognese yeah but obviously it doesn't take that much longer to make twice as much yeah it doesn't it really doesn't because actually once you're cooking all the other pieces if you're cooking for one or ten the thinking about the meal the going shopping the getting the pan out the only bit that actually takes a bit longer is the chopping everything else takes the same amount of time and this is something you know i i try to make people realize that the actual cooking isn't taking that much time. It's this whole sort of, the most of the brain space is being taken up by, by us overthinking it. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. 
having to, you know, planning it and shopping for it and, and trying to get your head around the recipe and following the steps and all the frustrations that come with it. So when you start cooking a bit more intuitively, then a lot of this just falls away. Well, you, you, you're not overthinking it. Yeah. And you can do stuff differently. You can do stuff without a recipe. So you can pull a meal out of somewhere, which if you can't cook, it's, you know, the classic people look in the fridge and they go, there's nothing to eat. And I'm like, the fridge is fucking full, man. Like you've got lots of stuff there. We could whip up. We made frittata yesterday, which was inspired by your Instagram video, by the way, because you were like, these are all the things you could do with frittata. I was like, I've only ever thought of it as a chef where you have onions and potatoes and you have to cook it this way. And that's it. And I'm like, oh, I've got loads of cooked potatoes left and there's some halloumi that's been hanging around in the fridge forever and I've got an old onion that's starting to sprout and you know I chucked it all together and put the eggs in and we had frittata for lunch yesterday and we've got a lunch today because I made a huge one but it makes it it actually makes it less time because I could have looked in the fridge yesterday and gone well there's nothing to eat because there's not a meal ready yeah I think there is quite something about this concept of, of thinking in meals you know, if you think in meals, then it's all quite rigid. And, you know, you can only make the meal with one, two, three, X, Y, Z specific ingredients. But if you think of it in a in a pattern, like a frittata mm. is basically stuff baked with a mix of eggs. You know, the mm. stuff could be anything. You can't make a frittata mm. without eggs. Okay. Well, you can actually. You can mm. use gram flour, chickpea flour instead of eggs. Ooh, Ooh. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, you find out about one thing and then you think, oh, you could combine it with that thing. And then, you know, you Google it and it turns out it is a thing. So I found this recipe about some, an Italian dish, which is called farinata, which is basically like a pancake. And you mix the chickpea flour with lots of water and lots of olive oil and let it stand for a mm. while. And then you can, and then you sort of cook it in the oven. You can either, you know, cook it like a pancake or cook it on a, on a tray and then you cut it into pieces. So that was one. Mm -hmm. And then when, you know, I started talking up on Instagram or in my blog and what would be, you know, the egg-free version. And I said, yeah, you could, you know, instead of putting a topping on the farinata pancake squares, you could add the vegetables in it which is which is what you do with a frittata and then I google you know chickpea frittata or vegan frittata and and it's all there you know it's versions i i remember some time ago i ran into this idea of a cabbage carbonara saw it somewhere you know in someone's video and i thought oh my god this is genius you could do a carbonara without using pasta you just use cabbage and you still put in the bacon and the cheese and it's actually really yeah, yeah, yeah. really amazing. amazing tasty and you know and i thought oh you know this person is genius but you know w once you mm. see it once you realize it's a thing i mean if you google cabbage carbonara there is ages and pages and pages of cabbage carbonara right? so wow. you know yeah. most things you kind of discover are a thing is like, you know, where does a recipe start? Who owns the recipe? Who's the recipe? Yeah. You know, that, but as they say, there is as many recipes as there are cooks. Yeah. There's so many nuances, but I really like that. You know, even the story about the cabbage car and I right? so I'm a chef. I love food. Never heard of that. And I'm like, oh yeah. And actually then when, in terms of the way you talk about it, about patterns and layers, 
like, well, how many other dishes can you do like that that would have pasta? You know, my children have got issues with eggs and dairy and wheat, which when it first happened, I was like, Jesus, which there's a whole nother conversation about that, about, wow, what have we done to the basic, you know, and I buy organic, local where I can, and, you know, I still use Sainsbury's, but I'm choosy about what I buy. And I'm like, why are my kids reacting to these things? And so there's a need then, you know, and I think a lot of parents are dealing with allergies and intolerances and reactions now. If we don't know how to cook, those things become a real problem and they were quite a problem. You know, the ingredients that have just been taken out of my cupboard are dairy and eggs and wheat. And, you know, for people listening to this, just think about that for a minute. I was making fish pie with cream and I was making, you know, pasta with cream sauce. So no more pasta, no more cream sauces, no more cheese, no more eggs. Wheat is in freaking everything. Pasta, bread, cereals, it's just everywhere. It was because I can cook that that wasn't actually that much of a big deal. It just took a little bit of like, okay, we need to, you know, rejig. And then when you start saying things like, well, there's cabbage carbonara now, okay, I couldn't do the eggs and the dairy bit in that, but it's that, you know, I started making fish pie with a tomato sauce instead of a cream sauce. And there were things that we just don't eat and gluten-free pasta's come a long way and we don't eat it very often, but like tonight we're going to have spaghetti bolognese with gluten-free pasta. It's the ability to cook that removes my requirement on food companies. Because if I go to the food companies saying no wheat, no pasta, no dairy, anyone who's experienced this and you've probably seen it, it's a horrible mix of replacement vile food that I wouldn't, it, well, I was going to say I wouldn't give it to my dog. My dog wouldn't eat it. You know, like my dog would look at me like, why are you giving that to me? But it was the being able to cook that made that not such a bad crisis. Because if you take those issues to food companies, their replacement versions are, I would say, probably worse than the original thing we're trying to avoid. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? That actually, if you think about it yourself, replacing things is, okay, what, you know, what does it do? How does it taste? What does it add or take away? And then, you know, you don't need a vegan recipe to take meat out of a recipe. You know, if you don't want fish in your pie, you just replace it with something else. And you just have to have, you know, an understanding of what things do. But a lot of this understanding is actually common sense. Like, I love this quote from Sami Nosrat, and she says, you know, cooking is all about using your senses, mostly common sense. That, 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 that's brilliant. Oh, I love that. And now, my kitchen friends, it's time for a quick break to see what I've been cooking up for you. If you ever feel trapped by recipes or wish you could get more creative in your kitchen, I made a free mini course. It's called Ditch the Recipes, and it's a short series of five emails that will help you get started on your intuitive cooking journey. Sign up on the website at theintuitivecook.co.uk slash free or find the link in the show notes. And now let's get back to our conversation. Yeah, because when you first started the sentence, I was thinking when I first worked for Raymond Blanc and he's very passionate and he was really, he was like, You've got to use your eyes. And the biggest thing actually that he taught me that I already sort of knew intuitively, but also he said, got to use your ears. How hot does the pan sound? How is the sizzling going? Like your ears will tell you a lot about cooking. I'd never thought about it before, but I'd never, never thought about common sense being one of the senses to use. 
because it is it's like well just stop and think for a minute yeah stop looking at the recipe look at the pan look at what is in front mm. of you <laughs> yeah i never right so maybe it's something you discovered having to deal with all these restrictions or maybe it's something from before what what is your favorite thing to eat mine hands down every time is roast chicken it's so simple so in a very british way although there's lots of versions of not great roast chicken out there but Roast chicken, gravy made from the pan juices, you know, a cauliflower cheese, roast potatoes and roast parsnip and some form of green veg, whatever's in season. You know, because that, that's the other thing I love about roast chicken. You can take it all the way through the seasons. In the summer, I have it with jacket potatoes and salad. I will put it on the barbecue and with salad. And in the, you know, in the wintertime, I'm already very excited about this Sunday because the autumn has arrived. They're like, yes, I can have roast chicken and roast potatoes. So I think it's because my mum cooked it and it was always so delicious. And I, when I worked in restaurants, I, I ran a pub for a, a couple of years with my first husband, just loved cooking Sunday lunch. And I cooked it how my mum cooked it. And a lot of chefs, in my opinion, mess with Sunday lunch. But it's like, stop messing with perfection and simplicity. You know, they make it too chefy, like when chefs put things in creme brulee. I'm like, creme brulee? just needs to be a creme brulee. It doesn't need anything else. And, and to people listening going, but I love raspberries in my creme brulee. That's fine if you really love it, but does it really need it? Because actually just creme brulee as it is, is like, in my opinion, perfection and simple. You know, it's like three ingredients, cream, eggs, sugar, that's it. So there's a memory hook, my mum cooking. Again, the smell, the preparation, the anticipation, the crispy chicken skin, but the chicken's still too hot to eat. That whole world um, and the, just the movability of it. It can be a different meal every Sunday. I can eat roast chicken every Sunday, but it's, it's a different meal every time. You know, I can put Indian spices on it. I can you know, do all sorts with it. Yeah, it's one concept. And it's a, it's a visceral thing. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So, and, you know, and I would say to expand it a little bit, I'd just say just roast dinners in the UK. Whatever the meat, it doesn't matter, lamb, pork, beef. It's just got so many options. You know, if, like if I had to, because people used to say, oh, what, what do you love cooking? And it, that's actually a different answer. What I love cooking is whatever's in front of me, seasonal. There'll be something in front of me, it's there for a reason, like Lorna, the farmer where we get her lamb, has got lamb again. And we haven't had lamb for a couple of months because she hasn't had any. But if there was one meal, if I could only ever eat one meal for the rest of my life, it would be a roast dinner because I can make it different with the same ingredients. And what is your like go-to emergency meal, like when you don't really have the time or the brain space to cook? Um, so if I've got it in the freezer, it'll be a bolognese for sure. I think, I don't know why bolognese is such a magical, it just seems to be everyone's favorite. And actually scrambled egg on toast is one of my favorites. And I cook it with butter. And there's cream in with the eggs and there's a piece of sourdough toast with more butter on it. When I was pregnant with my kids, this is probably why they're allergic to all these things. I lived on for breakfast, sourdough toast, loaves of butter, scrambled egg with cream and butter in it. And I, and I started putting cheddar cheese on top because I was just craving protein, you know, and fat whilst I was pregnant. I'm making links now. I'm like, well, maybe that's why I overdid it a bit on those three food groups. <laughs> I was pregnant. So they're both like, oh my God, no more. Like good scrambled eggs, like the most simple thing in the world. 
Yeah. And, and just thanks generally, like they're so big. I remember the Delia Smith book that came out, How to Cook an Egg. It was like, it was genius. One of the tests for working at the manoir when I went to, I had to do a two-day trial to go to the manoir and we had to cook a meal, anything we wanted, and then eat it with the head chef. And we had to figure out what worked in that meal and what didn't. So like I did lamb and ratatouille. And I was like, I've overcooked the lamb a bit. So they weren't testing my cooking skills. They were testing, did I know, you know, that actually the lamb was perfectly cooked or overcooked or whatever and seasoned and all the rest of it. And the other test was make me an omelette. That was Raymond Blanc's test for chefs coming in the kitchen. Cook me an omelette. It's such a simple thing. And people are petrified of cooking eggs. It's really interesting about, you know, okay, you cook a meal and then you have to figure out what could have been done better. Because this is also something that I see with a lot of people when something doesn't quite work out as you were hoping or the recipe said, you kind of say, oh gosh, I'm a terrible cook. And that's not, that's not what it is about. It's about, okay, this could have been better. Well, what is it that I would change? And, and become aware of it and say, yeah, you know, the lamb is overcooked. So then you have a mental note that next time. So I really, you know, encourage people to, well, that's again, you know, use your senses to be aware of when you like something, what is it exactly that you like? And when you don't like something again, you know, what is it, what you don't like? Because that is what builds up all these references in your head that you can then use when you When you stand in front of the fridge and think, oh, what the heck am I cooking tonight? That is when these references will give you your ideas. That's that's how you feed your cooking intuition. Yeah. And and also I think it it speaks to you've touched upon a deeper journey that people can go on with food, which is we internalize and shame ourselves and we go, I am bad or I am wrong. We cook something and we mess it up. We say, I'm bad, rather than, oh, I overcooked something. Big distinction, you know, in coaching and psychotherapy and all the rest of it and bringing up children, I'm more aware of it than ever. Oh, I did a thing, not I am that thing, you know? Oh, I cooked, I, I cooked something and it wasn't great, not I am not great. What people don't realize, and if, you know, anyone's listening to this thinking about like, I can't cook, people feel shame, like a failure. They don't want to talk about it, you know, especially with food. It's the same with money. It's the same actually in any area of coaching and teaching and you know, lead, like leading people to, to to do something, people have so much shame and fear around failure. And if you go on a journey to learn to cook, it will take you on such a deep soul search if you want it to. You don't have to. You can just learn to cook and it's fine. Like I'm not saying like, oh, you know, going to transform your life. And it could transform your life if you let it. Because if you actually can forgive yourself when, you know, overcook something or you can learn from it or you can go, oh, I cooked this meal. And next time I'm going to put a bit more salt or I'm not going to leave it under the grill for so long. You've just learned a mechanism for assessing what you did, deciding how to do it better next time, and then going back and doing it again. And then that can be applied to any area of life. So people think they're just learning to cook, but actually it's just a world of connection, you know, like of how we look at ourselves and then everything else. Because actually once we have confidence to cook and the fear and the shame's gone, we probably invite people for dinner. We'll give, we'll give a go cooking for our friends. And then when we do that, they start to go, oh, how do you do that? I can't cook. I hate cooking. And then they learn to cook. And like, I could go on. The ripple effect, it changes the world. And we think we're just learning to cook. And it's like, it is just learning to cook. And it, it's everything and nothing all at the same time. It's just learning to cook. But actually, it's going to change the world. 
I'm with you all the way on that one. And for me, cooking is such a, a safe place to practice getting out of your comfort zone and, and daring to, to do something yeah, yeah. and try something without being entirely sure of the outcome because we're, we're so afraid of mm. messing it up. But actually, cooking is very forgiving. You know, it may not turn out yeah. perfectly, but it is very, very difficult to make a meal inedible. So you don't need to be afraid to try, you know, just change one little thing. That's that's what I teach, you know, start where you are, just change that meal that you know, or even that takeaway that, you know, add some herbs, add a bit of lemon juice, mm. see what happens, be aware of what it does. And then next time you change another thing. And mm. this is how you start figuring it out, really, by trying something and putting your awareness onto what that experiment did do. Yeah. There's a whole world there of being present, you know, because actually most cooking that I mess up is because I wasn't paying attention or I didn't set a timer. People are like, why are you setting a timer? You're a chef. I'm like, because I'm a human and I know that in 10 minutes I might not be present to the fact that it's 10 minutes and I need to check the rice or turn the rice off or check the oven or whatever. It's massive. And I like what you said about just, just change one thing, like just, just take the takeaway and add something, start to cook it or just start with eggs, like depending on where people are that are listening to this, if you literally have never, ever cooked, of which the first thing to say is you're not alone. The funny thing, though, that I've noticed, you know, because I've tried that out of curiosity, what, what will ChatGPT spit out? So, okay, so you say, I've got these three ingredients. It will spit out a list of ideas. Then you put in different ingredients yeah. and it spits out another list of ideas. And, you know, another three ingredients, another list of ideas. But if you look at these ideas... It will tell you, well, you can do a stir fry with these ingredients. You can do a stew with these ingredients. You can make a soup with these ingredients. You can do yes. stir fried rice with these ingredients. So actually, it's all about the patterns. And the patterns are always the same. Of course, they're always the same because, you yeah, know, this yeah. is what, what meals are like. You know, they're either a soup or a roast or a stir fry or you know, a casserole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you, you mm. shared a lot of tips already, but, you know, if you had a couple of tips to share of what is what you do that makes life in the kitchen easy for you, what would be your top two or three tips? Mm. Good question. The first one is planning out, like planning out the week. And sometimes I, I don't do this and then I find I'm getting a bit bored. Although we have a joke in our house about recipe books because my husband will go, you never follow the recipe. You've got shelves full of cookbooks and you never follow the damn recipe. I'm like, yeah, well, I just, I've got the idea from it. So we do tend to get in a bit of a like, oh, I'm cooking this chicken korma. I've cooked this chicken korma for 10 weeks in a row now and I'm bored to tears of it. So the, the loose meal plan so I know what to shop. You can't cook. If you haven't got ingredients in the house, you can't cook. So I think, you know, wherever anyone's at, whether they're already a really great cook or they're just starting out or they want new inspiration, actually spending a little bit of time, and it's completely counterintuitive, right? So I'm a doer. It takes a lot to get me to sit down and just get my recipe books out or Google, you know, autumnal recipe ideas because actually understanding what's in season when you go in the supermarket, there's no clue as to what's in season. Generally, it all looks the same all freaking year round. So you're not going to get inspiration from the supermarket. I love ordering from Riverford and, you know, like local farmers because then I know what's in season. So 
having some kind of a plan and ingredients in the kitchen is a good start. Another thing that I do is I deal with what's going on in the day. So like Monday is my busiest day. I coach all day. I go and pick up the kids from school at three o'clock. We eat at five, which is, you know, to do with the kids' schedule. I used to eat late. Um, we eat at five and then I'm coaching again at seven till nine. So I have zero time technically, but also I make the activity cooking if that's what needs to be done. And I invite the kids into the kitchen. And if they don't, I don't make them come to the kitchen. I say, I'm cooking. If you don't want to cook, that's fine. But if you want to play with the big people, the big people are in the kitchen cooking. If you don't want to play the big people's games, you're going to have to, you know, do something else. Dealing with what I've got on is really useful. But I don't beat myself up. If, if I've got a really busy day, I deal with that and I plan accordingly. I think it's about changing our view of what cooking is. And, you, you, you know, we started talking about this at the beginning. Um, I think it's Michael Pollan says, evening isn't what happens after dinner. Dinner is the evening. And when we change that from like, we've got to get cooking and food out the way so we can, so you can what? Watch TV? When we get that that is the evening or the afternoon activity, depending on what time you eat dinner, we can be that this is the hobby. This is the pleasure. This is the passion. This is the learning. This is the inviting friends over, having a cook club and saying, well, I'll cook dinner on a Monday. You know, you, can I come to yours on a Tuesday night? And understanding that that is the evening. It's not the thing to get out of the way. So, and you know, most people then do what? Go and watch telly. And if you're out being busy, it's like you're still getting dinner out of the way, like a thing that has to be done rather than it being the thing. And it, t and it took me, you know, I'm a chef, I used to work 18 hours a day. There, that societally, we are so programmed without even realizing it, have this thing that it's a thing to do to get out of the way rather than it's not the thing to get out of the way so you can do the thing, but the thing is actually like watching telly or scrolling on Instagram. It's not so much the tips, it's the changing the mindset about what cooking is and understanding that cook it if you've got children or you've got a partner. Cook with your partner, be in the kitchen together. Owen can't stand cooking, my husband, but he does the washing up and he's around while I'm cooking, you know? So it's not a burden to me because I'm not doing all of it. This morning we had a delivery. We put it away together while the kids were having breakfast. I will cook. He'll start washing up. It's like it, it becomes a family interaction. The boys will empty the dishwasher. It's hilarious watching a three and five-year-old empty a dishwasher when our cupboards are high up take something to allow them to climb on chairs and stand on worktops to do it. It's the funnest thing I've ever done. So that is the act. The, the emptying the dishwasher is the connecting with my children. I don't get it out of the way so I can connect with my children. So it's shifting the mindset. I really love that reframe. Yeah, exactly. But cooking is the thing. So, or the, the mm. sharing food is the thing and cooking is, is part of that. And then all of a sudden there's so much time. When the cooking becomes the thing and you've got all evening, there's no rush anymore. You're not trying to get it out of the way because it is the thing, including after the meal. It's like, what's for breakfast tomorrow? Do I need to soak some oats? Do I need to make a pancake mix? What's for dinner tomorrow night? Oh, it's a busy day. I'll take the food out of the freezer so that it's ready. So that then on the day that it should be a rush, it's not a rush because I thought about it the day before. Like being present to it. We eat three meals a day. It's big. No way around that. 
Yeah, it's big and it's everything. And it's a journey into connection, meditation, being with people. If people are listening to this, it's going to change your life if you let it. Amazing. That's a really, really wonderful point to to bring this to a close. Mm. Thank you so much for your thoughts and inspiration. And that was pleasure. That was so fascinating. Thank you very much, Alex Louise. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of At Home with the Intuitive Cook. Check out the show notes for links and tasty morsels. And remember, fresh episodes are served up every other Friday. Subscribe to stay tuned and keep exploring the joys of everyday cooking. Until next time, stay curious, trust your taste and don't forget, it's not rocket science, it's just dinner.